Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 165. It's titled, Why Do We Invest? It's not just about return. Now, I might change the title by the time I publish it, but in today's episode, we're going to discuss value creation and the difference between corporate finance or finance and accounting. And we're going to cover some key corporate finance topics, such as net present value, discounted cash flow, future value, discount rate, internal rate of return. Going to discuss activist hedge funds and derivatives. And This is really, I don't think I've done an episode where I've tied traditional corporate finance to investing. And and this was a topic suggested by Richard, who runs into these these terms as part of his, he works, I think he said he was involved in land management or a very large land asset. So he's interacting with a lot of private equity firms that that throw around these terms. So we're going to get to the heart of what is finance and how does it relate to investing. And to kick it off, I want to discuss an investment that just absolutely dumbfounded me. This this came from a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus and a listener. And his father is is quite elderly in his late 90s. And he was, was helping him out. And so as part of it, got a look at the brokerage statement and found seven or eight of these investments that comprise about 8% of his father's net worth. Now, these investments, and I won't give you the name, I'm going to tell you a little bit about them first. The the broker got a 3.5% commission for each of those. Now, if you're in your late 90s, let's say 97, your life expectancy is two and a half years which means you typically need to have a relatively liquid portfolio so that if you happen to pass on, it makes it easier for your estate to liquidate your your assets and settle the estate. Now, these particular investments have a three-year term, which means their, their term is longer than the life expectancy of the holder of the investment. And the issuer is PMB Paribas the French investment bank, but this was issued out of their New York office. And they're quite clear in the 23-page document that I read about the investment that if an investor wants to sell early, they will likely receive significantly less than the investment amount. 97-year-olds should also invest in investments they understand. And I I don't know this investor personally. My listener says his father is still very sharp mentally. But let me just say that I have an undergraduate degree in finance, an MBA in finance. I have well over a decade of professional investment experience. Yet it took me over an hour to digest and understand the 23-page document describing an example of one of these investments. Now, what are they? What are they called? Here it is. Here's the title. It's not short. It's an 
auto-callable contingent income note linked to the worst of American Airlines Group, Delta Airlines, Southwest Airlines, and United Continental Holdings. That's what it is, an auto-callable contingent income note. Had never heard of them. Now I know a lot about them. So here it is. This is a note that pays out at a 9% annual rate. And that seems like a, well, that is an attractive return. If you could get a 9% yield on a note, that would be great. Except that the note is automatically redeemed. You got it. You'll get your money back if every one of those airline stocks rises above the price or their initial price when the note was issued. So if the airline sector as a whole does well, particularly these four companies and and their prices go up, then you get your money back and you don't get your 9%. So that means that the, the note does well if airline stocks don't do so well. But airline stocks can't do too poorly either because if one of those stocks, one of those four airlines falls below 50%, or the 50% decline from its 50% or more declined from its initial price when the note was issued, then the note also stops paying the 9% interest. And finally, after three years, when the note is matured or it's time for the note to mature, if any one of those four stocks is still more than 50% below its price at the time the note was issued, then the investor will take a significant loss. If one of those airline stocks falls 60%, the investor will lose 60% of the, their principal value invested. Now, that that's just a bizarre investment. Can't do too well, the stocks. Can't do too poorly. And if they, if they do poorly, you could lose a lot of money. If they do too well, then you no longer get your coupon payment and they redeem the note. Investing used to be much more straightforward than that before investment banks got involved in inventing auto-callable contingent notes. An investor could buy a bond or a fund that invests in bonds. And this, this, this note is not a bond. A bond is a debt instrument issued by a corporation that pays interest and will return the principal amount at maturity, assuming the issuer doesn't default. Now, there is no corporation like company that raised debt with these auto contingible notes. This is simply an investment bank, PMB Paribas, that issued the note as a sort of a quasi-income strategy, but it really isn't an income strategy because of the, the, the significant risk or the risk of significant loss. Instead of buying a bond, an investor could buy a stock or a fund that invests in stocks. A stock is ownership interest in a company. The investor can receive a portion of the company's profits in the form of a dividend. Now, some stocks don't pay dividends because company management believes they can earn a higher return reinvesting those profits than the investor can. Bonds and stock investors or their fund managers are willing to allocate capital to a specific company because they believe the company's management will not only meet the investor's return expectations, but exceed them. And this this is a critical concept in finance. Here's how Mihir Desai described it in his book that I mentioned last week, The Wisdom of Finance. 
He writes, finance's answer to the question of where value comes from is simple. The capital you're entrusted with has a cost because the people who gave it to you have expectations for return. Their expected return is your cost of capital. You are a steward of their capital. And the sine qua non of value creation is that you have to exceed their expectations and your cost of capital if you want to create value. Firms who continually undertake projects such as an airline investing in new planes or new routes that generate returns that exceed the weighted average cost of their debt and equity capital become more valuable. Their market valuation, as reflected in their stock price, increases. These firms give back more than they take. They create value. Firms that undertake investment projects whose returns fall short of their financing cost destroy value. And, the, and this cost of capital is key. It's the weighted average of the expectation of the equity shareholders and the, the debt interest rate. So if you have 70% of your company's assets are supported by debt and 30% by equity, then, then that forms your cost of capital. And those projects need to exceed that cost of capital in order to, to add value, to create value so that the value of the enterprise goes up. Corporate managers determine whether a project will create value by comparing a project's expected cash flow as reflected in today's dollars to the cash outlays required to undertake the project, which is also reflected in today's dollars. This calculation is called a net present value. And the present value of a, a stream of cash flows is the value that makes an investor indifferent between receiving cash today or cash in the future. And why would an investor be indifferent between getting the, getting the dollars today or getting the dollars three or four years from now or, or 10 years from now? Well, the investor would be indifferent about receiving the cash today or a cash down the road if the cash down the road earned a rate of return that met the investor's return requirements, given the risk of the investment. So if, if your return re requirement is 6%, you could get the discounted value uh, of those cash flows today, or you could have it that those cash flows invested and earned 6%. And five years down the road, you would essentially get that future value that has compounded at 6%. If the present value or the value in today's dollars of a project's expected cash flow exceeds the present value of the capital outlay, then the project should be undertaken. If not, the project should be abandoned. Here's how Gabriel Hawawini and Claude Viollet write or put it in their book, Finance for Executives. Here's the quote. A business proposal creates value if its net present value is positive and destroys value if its net present value is negative. The proposal's net present value goes to the investors who own the project. In other words, to the shareholders of the firm that undertakes the projects. This means that the shareholders should be able to sell their equity stake in the company that announced the project for more than they could sell it for if the project were not undertaken. And the difference should be equal to the project's net present value. Now, I, I've dealt with finance for decades, so maybe... This makes perfect sense to me, but I, I can tell you as an undergrad in finance, this was this idea of present value 
what was just so confusing. Yet it, it is the core of finance. The difference between finance and accounting is finance is focused on the future. These future cash flows valued in today's dollars and, and projects and whether a project has a positive net present value or it, it, it has a, a negative net present value. And whereas accounting is focusing on the past, what happened in terms of the income that was generated, the cash flows, documenting it? What are the assets worth, worth today, often held at, at cost? And, and that's really the biggest difference. The finance is, is looking at expect, expectations, expected cash flows. But this idea of, of present value, of a series of cash flows discounted back into today's dollars, Using the cost of capital, which is the weighted average cost of capital, which comprises the return expectations for stockholders and the, the interest rate on the debt. And the lower the discount rate that those cash flows are then discounted back and reflected in today's dollars, the lower the discount rate, the higher the present value. So one of the challenges is figuring out, well, what, what is and I found this in my undergraduate course of finance. Well, what, what do investors expect? Nobody, you don't buy a stock and maybe in your mind you have expectation, but it's hard to figure out what that is. Now, the opposite, so that's present value. Future values is, as I said, it's just that series of cash flows that are then compounded at the cost of capital. And what would those cash flows be valued five or 10 years from now? Now, one other Somewhat challenging finance topic that you might have heard of, internal rate of return. So I've described net present value. So you have the present value of the capital outlay, and you have the, the present value of the expected cash flows. They're both discounted or put in today's dollars based on that cost of capital. And then if, if you take the present value of expected cash flows and you subtract the present value of the capital outlay, outlay. If it's positive, then it then it's a good project. If it's negative, it's not. Now, another way that they, they do it is, well, what is the, let's say it's positive. And so it has a positive net present value. You can also back into the discount rate or you know, what would the discount rate to make that positive net present value project be zero? So where the present value of the expected cash flows equals the present value of the capital outlays. And that interest rate is called the internal rate of return. So that's the internal rate of return that makes this net present value calculation zero. And, and the idea, so if it's a really successful project or expected to be successful, we might have a 12% internal rate of return. That's the, that's the rate required to get the expected cash flows, the present value of the expected cash flows equal to the capital outlays. And then at the weighted average cost of capital, let's say 6%, then again, it's a good project. Now, that's how it works in theory. The challenge is it's often difficult for management to determine a project's future cash flows, particularly given how unpredictable the world is. And investors are often less focused on long-term projects and more, did the company management beat earnings estimates for that quarter? Did it make the number? And so once we get into the real world, it's nice. This is the bedrock of corporate finance, but it, it gets a little bit muddled in terms of implementation. Let me pause for a moment and share a message from this week's sponsor. 
Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. The Pearl and I recently had dinner with some friends who run a retail business. They have multiple stores and an online shop. And they recently used Shopify to better manage their inventory so they could ship online orders out of all of their stores instead of the warehouse. It helped them get a higher conversion rate on their website because of Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, just like it did for our friends. With the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com david, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com david now to grow your business, no matter what state you're in. Shopify.com slash David. Now, let's say you're a CEO of a publicly traded company, have your management team, your CFO, your, your, your team of financial managers that are bringing forth capital projects that require an outlay of cash flow. And, and then they have expected cash flows. They calculate the net present value. And it's a little... Unclear. I mean, there, there's risk involved. Will those cash flows come to fruition? And, and so the project will be positive. So you're looking at these, these capital projects and deciding what to do. Now, the alternative is, as we mentioned, if, if there's a way to lower the cost of capital for the firm's existing projects, then the value of the firm goes up because the, the present value or the net present value will increase as the cost of capital declines. And the best way that a CEO and their management team can decrease their cost of capital in a world today where interest rates are super low 
is by taking on more debt and then buying back shares of stocks. So they reduce their, their, their weighted average cost of capital by reducing the amount of equity outstanding and increasing the amount of debt. And that increases earnings per share, which makes the shareholders happy. The CEO are often compensated by the performance of the share price. And all they did was buy back stock by raising debt. And from a theoretical finance perspective, they just lowered the weighted average cost of capital. In the year ending March 31st, 2017, there was $550 billion of net share repurchases in the U.S. And I'm looking at this, this chart by Ned Davis Research and the very tight correlation connection in terms of the amount of debt raised and the amount of share repurchases. And it's been a significant trend since the end of the economic recession that just amount of share repurchases goes up and up and up. And it went up and up and up and peaked in 2008. And then during the recession, the, the amount of share repurchases dropped off. But we're back in that trend because it's easier. It is definitely easier just to repurchase shares as opposed to invest in new projects. As a CEO of a publicly traded company, there's a lot of pressure to increase earnings per share in the stock price because there, there are activist hedge funds out there and private equity firms willing to take the firm private if they can. And as a result, I, for example, I read an article recently with New York Times, Nelson Peltz of Trion Partners, that's the name of his hedge fund. He just, he's been buying shares in Procter & Gamble, P&G. This is a consumer products company that make Tide, Crest, and other consumer products companies based in Cincinnati. My great-grandfather moved up from Maysville, Kentucky to Cincinnati to work for Procter & Gamble, I think early in the 20th century. Procter & P&G has lagged behind S&P 500 by half over the past five years and has had 13 consecutive quarters of sales decline. And so Nelson Peltz announced this week a proxy battle to get a board seat so he can shake things up. He thinks he can do a better job managing the company. But it was interesting, this New York Times article had a quote that Peltz told to Fortune a while back. Here's the quote. The activists play the balance sheet by selling a division to buy back stock and leveraging the balance sheet and buying back more stock. That's doing exactly what we're talking about doing, lowering the, the cost of capital so that the, the firm value increases. He goes on. Any MBA can do that. And most Wall Streeters do do that. He says, we improve the earnings power of the company. Our background is in operations, not in Wall Street. So he's saying when he takes an, he doesn't even like the name activist. He thinks he's, I think that was a construct, constructiveness, constructivist is how he put it. Being constructive, creating, increasing the earnings power of the company. And that, that's what he that's what he wants to do. In other words, identify capital projects that have a positive net present value, have an attractive internal rate of return. And we're gonna we're gonna increase the company's share price by improving revenue, sales, increasing cash flow. That's how he wants to do it, not by buying back stock. We'll see how that turns out. Now admits all this talk about increasing the stock price and net present value expected cash flow. Gabrielle Hawaini and Claude Violette remind us in their book, Finance for Executives. Here's the quote. You may rightly ask whether we are forgetting 
the contributions of employees, customers, and suppliers. No firm can succeed without them. Great companies do not only have satisfied shareholders, they also have loyal customers, motivated employees, and reliable suppliers. The point, of course, is not to neglect customers, squeeze suppliers, or ignore the interest of employees for the benefit of owners. More value for shareholders does not mean less value for employees, customers, or suppliers. On the contrary, firms managed with a focus on creating value for their shareholders are among those that have built durable and viable relationships with their customers, employees, and suppliers. They know that dealing successfully with employees, customers, and suppliers is an important element is an important element in achieving their ultimate objective of creating value for the shareholders. Now, they might know that. The question is, do they do that? And, and that's where there's an agency problem. What are, we don't know deep down what the incentive are of company management. What, even when they're in their board meetings, you just don't ever see that. That's one reason I don't invest in individual stocks. It's just, there's just too many unknowns, which is why I prefer to invest in asset classes and, and diversify as much as possible. Ben Hunt, chief investment strategist of Salient Partners, recently wrote that diversification isn't a pretty bird. Diversification by design is going to have winners and losers simultaneously. Diversification by design is never going to look pretty doing its job because if your portfolio is all working in unison, swooping through the market in a beautiful glint of gold, well, you may be making money, but you sure aren't diversified. When you're diversified, you have different return drivers. There will often be something not doing as well in your portfolio while other things are doing well. And that's just the nature of diversification. Now, let's get back to this auto-callable contingent income note linked to the worst of four airlines. What is it? It's not equity. You're not investing. You don't have ownership in a company. And it's not straight up debt. It's a derivative, a derivative contract. Investopedia describes a derivative as a security with a price that is dependent upon or derived from one or more underlying assets. That's exactly what this is. Your yield, your 9% payout is dependent on the performance of four airline stocks. Derivatives are, in some ways, they're a form of insurance. So derivatives aren't bad. A, a home insurance, for example, is a derivative contract. The value of your homeowner's insurance, whether you'll get a payout from the, uh, the insurance company, depends on your asset, your home, whether you, you have some type or, or loss or not. And so many derivatives or companies enter into derivative contracts to, to hedge, to protect against unforeseen events, to protect against or hedge against some risk. So that, that's how derivatives are often used. But derivatives can also be used to speculate. Episode 143 of the show was on the difference between investing, speculating, and gambling. And I shared some work by Dr. Kingsley Jones from Australia. It was a work titled Product Design and Financial Literacy. And he said an investment is a bet of prospective positive return. So the, the investor has expected has an expected positive return. What they require, which is also the, the, the firm raising the capital, that's their cost of capital. Their cost of capital is their investor's expected return. It's the same amount. And so they take that capital 
and they invested in the company that raised the capital in something that increases, well, that has a positive net present value, as we've talked about, in something that will help them produce goods or services or enhance their ability to produce goods and services to generate a rate of return that exceeds that cost of capital. That's what investing is. And so when we invest, we're helping a business be more productive and efficient to innovate and hopefully to increase the well-being of society. But a speculation is totally different. It's a bet in which there is a viable disagreement on the sign of the return. So it's speculation because it's not investing in a, in a potential productive capital project. It is, it's a speculation. Now, it could be the other side of a trade if somebody's trying to hedge a particular situation. But there's, there's disagreement. Will gold be positive? Will this currency appreciate or depreciate? Something along those lines. And then a gamble is something that has a prospective negative return. And that's just, you know you're going to lose money, so you do it for the entertainment value. These autocallable contingent notes are not investments. They're speculations. They do not help any company raise capital to invest in a productive project. They're simply a derivative contract put together by an investment bank that help a broker earn 3.5%. The investment bank, PMB Paribas, is going to earn a return. I don't know why they put it together. When I think about the broker that sold this, I don't think he met a fiduciary standard. Now, I wasn't there. I don't know. I don't know the broker. I'm not disclosing his name. But a fiduciary has a responsibility of undivided loyalty and utmost good faith. Now, the broker doesn't have a fiduciary relationship. Probably when he sold this, the fiduciary law just went into place, raising the standard for brokers. But they do have a standard of fairness to make recommendations to their clients that are suitable and consistent with their client's interest. And putting a three-year note into a into the portfolio of somebody that has an expected life expectancy of two and a half years may, makes no sense, at least, at least to me. I just don't think it's appropriate. To wrap up, though, Mihir Desai, in his book, The Wisdom of Finance, kind of takes this whole concept of, of value creation and extends it to our lives. It's a, a great, great quote. He says, finance has a simple recipe for value creation. Surpass the expected return of your capital providers. And we've talked about that. Surpass those expectations as long as you can. Grow. So keep generating returns that are higher than your cost of capital. That's all that re really matters for creating value. The finance recipe for value creation can also be easily mapped to the way we think about our lives. The first step, surpass the expected returns of your capital providers, can be understood as saying that you should give more than you take. That is, return much more to the world than the considerable talents you've been given. The second step, surpass those expectations for as long as you can, is simply another way of saying never stop giving more than you take. Finally, grow so you can keep generating returns that are higher than your cost of capital. It's just another way of saying that you should never stop investing in yourself and continue to grow. Postpone harvesting as long as you can because the returns to investing in your efforts can be enormous. Postpone harvesting. I think that would be another way of saying don't retire early. 
If you're enjoying your career, continue to invest in yourself. Don't go off and just hang out at the golf course for the rest of your life. Continue to be productive and, and give more than you take. So that's episode 165. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. That's awesome. You can sign up for, for my free insider's guide, and I'll email those show notes to you and a summary article and other valuable content each week. You can sign up for that on the homepage at moneyfortherestofus.com, or if you're a U.S.-based listener, you can text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>